Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here. Worship the Lord God with you. Uh, this morning, uh, we do have a special kind of service, in that being that next week, we won't have service here. I just want to remind you all that we will be having our service in Spruce Lake, where our retreat is. And so, don't come here. There will be nobody here. And if you can't join us for the retreat, then we'll have an online option for you that you can watch service and join us virtually that way. You know, I have been thinking about that, and I asked my wife, how long have, have we been doing this? Um, how long have we been doing this worship at the retreat center on Sundays? And I really enjoy it. It's, like, it's almost like a family vacation. Once a year, you guys go on a family vacation, our church the family of God, we go on some sort of retreat vacation. We all worship there. Then I also thought of perhaps, you know, people who are checking us out, uh, newcomers and people like that, and they wouldn't be able to join us. Perhaps they didn't know about the retreat or they found out too late or maybe for whatever reason they can't join us and if we would have anything for anybody like that. So I am praying through it, but for next week, we won't have service here. We'll have service in Spruce Lake. I know many of you are actually driving down there as well just for our Sunday service. And so please keep that in mind. There will be nobody here in 125 Galway. And we have been going over every Sunday uh, the book of Hebrews. And it has been quite a trip and a ride for us. If you have been with us, um, it has gone to exploring now the depths and riches of the gospel, who Jesus Christ is and how the Lord had set us up and prepared us to be able to receive what we are able to receive here. And so if you are newer, I do encourage you to listen to the sermons before. It is a progression up to chapter 8, 9, and so on. And we are going through chapter 8 in its entirety this morning. So as we begin, let us start with a prayer. Let your gospel, O Lord, come to us in word, but also in power, and in much assurance, and in the Holy Spirit, that we may be guided into all truth and strengthened unto all obedience and enduring of your will with joyfulness, that abounding in the work of faith and the labor of love and the patience of hope, we may finally be made partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us turn to Hebrews again. We are on chapter 8 in its entirety, and that would be Hebrews chapter 8 from verses 1 through 13. And if you have a pew Bible that you can find in the seat in front of you, it's on page 945. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. 
Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I have been sharing with the leaders um, and the members and just want to reiterate that. What I find a little bit fascinating is culture, why we do the things that we do, um, to the little to the greatest things, especially when it's concerning our worship service. For example, uh, our culture is a little different than, let's say, when I went to a conference in... Orlando, Florida, a few years ago. Uh, I saw this one family, and they had a string of kids come into this conference. It's like a family of seven or something like that. And obviously, they ranged in ages. And they all sat at one time in the front row, and they were all quiet. I didn't know what the parents fed the kids. Maybe they fed them like two cups of warm milk or something before, but they were all silent. And I, I, you know, just to remind you, that conference is about 12 hours long with one hour break or one and a half hours break between lunch. So you'd get there by 8 and sometimes you'd leave at 10 p.m. It's very intense. It's just lecture, plenary, uh, breakout sessions, panels over and over again. It's an intense kind of study. And I was thinking about that. That is that's fascinating. Um, and then we have our culture, how children worship is different. I'm not saying one is better than the other necessarily. I'm just saying culture is different. In our culture, our children aren't like that. I don't see any string of seven here sitting quiet, ranging from a newborn all the way to, I think it was like, look like a preteen. And so the culture aspect fascinated me. What dictates culture? 
Right now, we are in a place where a lot of people have also said in their narrative, in their assessment of what's going on in the world, that we are in a sort of culture war. So these are the culture wars. Here they are. You know, it's parents versus the school. There's one going on right now, a protest between parents and the school board, even in L.A., that's making the news. And so that's an interesting aspect of our culture. What are we to make of this? But I want to also take a step back a little bit to try to maybe parse why we see the things that we do and if culture wars are really the pinnacle or the essence of what we should be mainly concerned about. Because I would like to present to you that it's not. Culture wars aren't the highest thing that we are to put all of our passions and energy into because culture comes from somewhere. Culture is actually dictated to us, whether you know it or not. There's a reason why children in our service worship God the way they do. It's taught, culture is tradition taught. It's parents teaching. This is normative, and this is unacceptable. This is in the range of maybe it's okay, I wish it would be better. There's, there's a spectrum. Culture is dictated. Culture is dictated by whom, though? Culture is dictated, and this is what I would like to present, culture is dictated by priests. Why do I say that? Who are priests today? Who, who's, who's a priest that would dictate culture to you all? And so who are the priests of today? What do I mean by priests? And I went over it a little bit a few weeks ago. What I mean by priests are that they are arbiters of truth. They stand in the way between you and the truth. Whether you see it this way or not matters not. They are arbiters of truth because they are the ones that will dictate to you what truth is. And from that understanding, your culture will be developed. Arbiters of truth are people like who, for example, and I didn't get into it the few weeks prior, but there are people nowadays like politicians. People look up to politicians and say, please give us these laws so that our culture can be affected. That's, that's looking to them as an arbiter of truth. Let politicians say it, and then we know it's true. I'm going to give you a, a little bit more um, of something about maybe a hot topic. I believe they are also influencers, okay? Maybe not as much as you think, but I think they are arbiters, arbiters, excuse me, of truth to a certain degree, influencers. Um, you know, you just had a baby. You have many babies. Life has got to be tough. I bet it's tough. I'm a mom too. I get it. I'm, I'm giving you an example, okay? What you want to do is, what you don't notice is that when you are stressed and you're full of anxiety in life, you tend to furrow your brow a little bit more. And all this energy and all the stress and the muscles start to kind of, kind of come together right on your brow. What you want to do is you want to take a cold compress, put it over your brow, and relax your face, what you'll realize is that your blood flow to your face and to your head will be better. Do this twice a day or wherever 
you think is necessary. Follow me for more tips on how to live a happy and healthy momhood. And then, you know, the social media sign comes up. I told you this. I have no idea if it's true. I just made that up. So I don't know if it's true or not, but the whole point is people will look to that. Oh, I do want to live a healthy and happy life. Why? Because that's the goal. If that's the goal, who's going to lead me to this truth? And then you have someone who tells you, I can help you get to this truth. It's no longer entertainment. People are looking past entertainment and looking to see if, that there, if there are any arbiters of truth. And you will see that these people, especially this not just merely entertainment value. There are people with millions of followers that say, I'm just here for entertainment. That's not true. They have a teaching that they give, that they're putting forth some sort of knowledge for people to see and be edified with or be changed by to hopefully benefit their life. I think, I think a lot of people, they intend well, but that's the point. It matters not what your intents are. It could be evil. It could be good. Whatever it is, it's the position. It's the office. You are putting yourself as an arbiter of truth. You are, in effect, putting yourself out there as a priest. And so the Bible talks about priests. In fact, in the chapter before, Melchizedek had been explained. The concept is introduced that is going to be developed even further in chapter 8. And that concept is that the Levitical priesthood is deficient. The Levitical priesthood, meaning the priesthood under Moses, is deficient. Why? And he gave two in chapter 7 that he's going to develop. And in chapter 7, verse 23, it's because priests are fallible. Because they're fallible, they're subject to death. They're going to die. And we went over this, but isn't in the end you want to live a long, healthy, prosperous life? Don't people want that? Isn't that why you listen to things, do the things that you do, exercise, eat, do all these routines? Because you want to live a long, healthy, happy life. What is that? pointing to it's pointing to you wanting to live forever if you didn't you would do the opposite of those things you need a double big mac or something like that every day i don't know but um no one does that because they are listening to what might lead them to a long happy and healthy life but priests in themselves they are fallible they are subject to death number two is that This necessitated for them, in verse 27, chapter 7, this is just a review, that they needed to constantly repeat sacrifices for both themselves, the priests, and the people. And so further weaknesses are going to be developed here in this chapter, and the weakness will be contrasted, the weaknesses will be contrasted with the high priest. The contrast, number one, between the heavenly tabernacle and the earthly one. And number two, the, the contrast between the obsolescence of the Levitical arrangement followed by the heralding of a new covenant. I want to explain what those mean, those terms mean as well as we go on. So who is the high priest? In Greek, it is the archaeus. And the archaeus means the high priest, the grand priest, the number one priest. And to demonstrate these two major points that I've just said, we see it in the text. It's split up 
And he's going to explain further of the two points that I just mentioned, further what those major points mean when it comes to the high priest. And those two points today that I'll be going over is minister and mediator. Minister and mediator. So the first point, minister in heaven from verses 1 through 5. I'll just read verses 1 through 2 right now, and we'll go over that. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. We've established in the previous chapter the superiority of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is in the order of Melchizedek, meaning he is without beginning or end, therefore superior to all priests subsequent Moses, a.k.a. the Levitical priesthood. The reiteration of this point, or the pointing back to this is the, in this first verse, is a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And this expression is paralleled with what we saw in verse 26 of the previous chapter. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest same language, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So what is this next part explaining? There's the addition, verse 2. He is not just seated at the right hand of the Father God Almighty. He is a minister in the holy places. Those are different things that he's going to extrapolate on. He is ministering in heaven. The heavenly sanctuary, meaning the place where God resides. And just as we ended chapter 7 with the author equating priesthood with sonship, in verse 28, he's now putting that together by showing us the unity between the priesthood and the heavenly session. And so what do I mean by session? A session is the ruling body. In our church, we have a session. We call the elders the session because session literally means to be seated. To be seated means to rule, not just to sit because you're tired, right? And so the session is the ruling body. And when we say Christ the Lord is seated, we are saying that he is in session. It comes from Psalm 110 that the author has very, very elaborately explained throughout the previous chapters. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is the ultimate priest, and he is seated as the ultimate ruler. And this is not just for transcendental dignity, meaning this is not just so that we say, wow, look at who he is, but it also is pointing to his eternal office, meaning there's something that he is doing. So he is transcendental, he is majestic, he is glorious, he is beautiful, all the things that you might sing about, but he also has an office. An office means that there is an order. An order means there is a duty. A duty means that he is doing something. So what is that thing? Before we get into that, I just want to reiterate that the church's session, this church's session, the group of elders, is under the authority of Christ. The church's session is under something or someone. It's the authority of Christ. But I also want to add this, and this is tying into the introduction that I did. Christ's kingship is not exclusively over the church. 
Christ's kingship is not exclusively over the church, meaning it's not only over the church. His authority is over what? When Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, when Christ is seated and in session ruling, what does he have dominion over? What, does, what is he ruling over? His authority is over the entire universe, meaning his rule is of cosmological significance. The weight is cosmological. This is why the disciples were able to say, we must obey God rather than man, even though they had authority figures over them. They also spoke out against kings and rulers who would disobey the clear and direct order of the commandments of God. They're like, really, did they? I'll give you one example. Paul is now presented before King Agrippa, governor Festus, in Acts chapter 26, He says this, after he tells them of the conversion he had, he says this, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had help have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to our people and the Gentiles. There it is. Are you listening? What he said to King Agrippa and to Festus and to all those in the royal court was that Number one, he preached repentance. You have to repent. You have to change the mind, metanoia. And number two, he preached Christ's death and resurrection. It's Christ that is the truth. Now, when they heard this, they didn't go, yeah, whatever. They didn't say that. How did Festus respond? In the next verses, he literally exclaims, after hearing what Paul is saying, and they're listening to him, his exclamation, his response is, Paul, you are out of your mind. Now think about it. When you explain the gospel to someone, you talk about repentance and the kingship, the lordship of Christ, meaning he was dead and he rose again from the dead, how do people respond to you now? But the way Paul said it made these elite, educated people the royalty of the nation of that region to exclaim, Paul, you are out of your mind, and this is what he says after. Your great learning has driven you insane. Like, what you are saying just doesn't make sense. I can't refute it. It just sounds like crazy talk to me. And Paul responds, actually, my words are true and rational, meaning he's spoken the truth, rational meaning There is reason behind it. See, your boss, our government leaders, all leaders at society in large are under the authority and rule of Jesus Christ. That is something that we aren't just to believe, but we are to declare. Christ is Lord, wherever you are. 
because it's absolutely true. Christ is Lord actually is now popping up in billboards all over the states. There is a movement by one Christian group that if you give them some money or donate, they'll use that money to get billboards all throughout the, all throughout the United States. We may even see a billboard for a time in New York City. What do the billboards mean, though? If you see Christ as Lord in Times Square, for example, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that this is a campaign for you to cast your vote for Jesus. That's not what Christ as Lord means. When the disciples and the apostles and all of Christendom afterwards would declare Christ as Lord, what it meant was it is an announcement. I am heralding the truth. The announcement is that Christ is already on the throne. That's the announcement. So let's put this all together. The office of high priest and minister in the holy places implicates continuous action, not merely status. And so what is, what is the true tent that the Lord set up? What is this action that is happening? And he doesn't elaborate on it here, but you can infer from the chapters before and what is being said here with the tent is this. Salvation. Salvation. And what does salvation mean? It means access to God. The ministry that Christ is performing is access to God. Access to God is no longer going to be permitted under the Levitical priesthood because it is inadequate. Access to God is through the high priest and the high priest alone. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Priests are associated with sacrifices. And this alludes to the fact that Jesus Christ offered a sacrifice. Namely, he gave up his life. And if he were a priest of the Levitical order, he would not have qualified. His priesthood is not contained in the Levitical order. The Levitical priesthood was for an earthly priesthood, which would have excluded Jesus. But the point the author is making that he is of, not of the earthly priesthood, but one of heaven. So not only is he qualified, but his ministry and sacrifice and intercession is of a heavenly nature. He's going to explain what that means. But we need to make this distinction. Christ's priesthood is of a heavenly nature. His ministry is of a heavenly nature. What does that mean? In verse 5, he says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. See, the earthly priesthood, although sanctioned and commissioned by God, only copied what Moses saw. So Moses was on Mount Sinai. You can read it in Exodus. Moses saw a model of the perfect, the pattern of the perfect, and he was able to take that pattern and follow it. So by that very nature, the copy of the pattern then is not only imperfect, it's incomplete. He's saying something very strong again here, and he's hammering this point in. The Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of the earth, is incomplete. It is imperfect. 
Because shadows, by their nature, are transitory. They are shifting. They are changing. It will pass away. Which leads us to our second point, mediator. Mediator of a better covenant. First, he is a minister of heaven. And now we see that he is a mediator of a better covenant. In verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. He's developing on the idea that the old priesthood is temporal, passing away. Their ministry and covenant attached to it then is also passing away. The Levitical priesthood was there to foreshadow a ministry that is going to be superior, far superior, and it is implied then what? This ministry that Jesus holds is not a shadow. If it's not a shadow, what is the ministry of Jesus? It is the substance. And because of that, the covenant tied to the heavenly, transcendental, eternal ministry of Christ is also superior. By his perfect obedience in life and death, Jesus established and heralded a new covenant. He is a mediator, or new mediator of a new covenant. And his mediation is also of universal consequence cosmological significance. The actualization of this provision of the covenant is guaranteed because of the mediator, meaning entrance into the heavenly sanctuary, entrance into the presence of God, having access to God, acceptance to God, is done. It's finished. There's no one else that can add to it. No one else could tell you a truth that is better or superior to this truth that you see here because this is the substance. Everything else resembling, even resembling the truth is a shadow and the shadow will pass away when the substance comes. This is why the qualitative term better is used twice to show emphasis. It's better than the old covenant because the promises that comes with the new are better. Verse 7 and the first part of verse 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He finds fault with them when he says. Okay, so this first portion and verse 13 are the buns of a sandwich or a burger. And so they, they're saying almost the same thing. And it's sandwiching or burgering uh, verses 8 through 12. And verses 8 through 12 is a quote from Jeremiah 31. It's to show the defectiveness of the Old Covenant. It needed to be replaced, and it was foretold even that it would be replaced. All the way back in Jeremiah's time, there was a foretelling that a new covenant would come. The plan for a new covenant being inaugurated at a later time was already being clearly unfolded for the people of the Old Covenant, of people in the Mosaic Covenant, to see. And it was intended for them to understand that there is a new one coming. That's the, that's the buns. That's the sandwich. And so here is the meat from verses 8 to 12. It's a promise found in Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. It's a pledge that there will be a future establishment of a relationship with God. So it is qualitatively new in that sense, but it would be affirmed by the presence. This is how you can tell. There, is, there would be a presence of the law in the hearts of the believers as a gift of God. Now, I want to make this distinction because some of you have grown up in the church. People think that the new covenant is a changing of the law. 
That is not true. God's nature and character does not change. What he said in the Old Testament about truth and the character of God is still true. But the new covenant then is what? It's about the presentation of God's law, not the content, the presentation. So what do I mean by that? The old covenant people could not even follow God's command. It says that right there. It could not be absorbed outward in. You can't get the law and absorb it in. It doesn't matter how much you try. It doesn't work that way. So it was incomplete in that sense. So what does it mean to say that the new covenant is about the new presentation of God's law? And so law, this is what it means. It means you must be born again. It means you must be born again. Now, someone who understood the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, he was one of the Pharisees. He studied this intensely all day and night throughout his youth, through his adulthood. He understood what was being said in the law. But he still came to Jesus, a man named Nicodemus. It says he was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night because he was afraid and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus already knew why Nicodemus came. Signs meant there would be truth pointing going forward. You didn't just have a sign for sign's sake. God didn't give prophets signs and the power of miracles just to say, ooh, look how cool that is. God is with them. That's not, that's not what it is. God gave signs because there would be a truth that God would reveal through the minister that he's showing the signs through. And so by Nicodemus saying this, he is saying, Jesus, I know that you are from God. And if you are from God, you're going to tell us something about God because no one can do the signs that you are doing. Jesus knew right away. So immediately Jesus answers, and I'm reading from John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. What? Nicodemus replies, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He says something a little ridiculous. Maybe it was really late at night. He didn't have his coffee. I don't know what it was, but this is what he said. What do you mean be born again? Jesus answered again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That's the change. Are you listening? The change is we've always thought that with the law outside, we could get the inside changed. It doesn't work that way. That was a foreshadowing of what was to come. It was incomplete. It was fallible. It failed. The people of God constantly, constantly broke his laws, as good as those laws were. Now, what's the change of this new covenant? It's reversed. Now it's inside out. When God saves you, when the true high priest brings you to all truth, your inside is changed. And from the inside out, you see that change happening. And to prove that, the Lord gives us a seal, like a seal. He gives us the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the guarantor of Christ's mediation. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How do you know that the law is inside you and you will follow God's way? It's very difficult. How can you do that? Remember when you were a kid, your parents told you, or if you have kids, you tell your kids, this is the law? How many times did you not follow the law, even though you knew it was good? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mom, I know, I know. And your mom would say, you say that you know, but you don't do it. That means you don't know. It's like, what, what are you talking about? I know. But you're not doing it, so you don't know. And there's this back and forth you may have had. How do you know that you have the law inside of you and that you will follow God's ways? It's the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been called the Comforter. Kum from kum, meaning with, and forte, meaning strength. We use this word comfort now in case someone is very sad or weakened. I'm there to comfort you. We, we offer our sympathies to those that are suffering and say, I'm here to comfort you. But there's an addition to this origin of the word comforter in the English language. It means not just with the kum part, but it also means forte, with strength. The helper is the Holy Spirit, and he is with us with strength. He will teach you. Well, let's just read it right there. In John 14, 26, But the Helper, or the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, I really want us to get who the Holy Spirit is, what his role is. The Holy Spirit's role isn't for him to come upon you and then you do all these wacky things. The Holy Spirit is there with strength because he's going to help you follow the laws of God. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. But this word, helper or comforter, is from the Greek paraclete. You may have heard that word before. Para is also with, and clete means called, right? So he is one that's called alongside you. The first paraclete is, of course, Jesus, because in verse 16 of John chapter 14, he says, I will give you another comforter or another helper, another paraclete. That means in difficult times, difficult times, it may be of our own making, it may be of the making of someone else, it matters not through difficult times, we know that we have a helper interceding for us, that's the high priest, the first paraclete, and another helper that is with us in strength. That's the Holy Spirit. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that your eyes were open to see and your ears were open to hear the truth and beauty of Jesus' importance in all of the universe. And so he ends this chapter by saying this. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. God himself is the one canceling the old covenant because the new and better one is the one he has established through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What does that mean for us? Do not turn then to your old ways. There is no truth in it. Other people will try to be these arbiters of truth, maybe deceptively, maybe sneakily, they'll put it in there. They'll use different kinds of languages. Please follow me, subscribe to me, just listen to what I have to say. But the truth is not in them. The truth is in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, there are people, though, that will hear this, and I just want to speak on this. I get it, I get it, but how come I keep on sinning? How come it's difficult for me to even understand sometimes? And it's like Proverbs 26, 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool that repeats his folly. They feel like that sometimes. I know this is wrong, but I keep on doing it. And Proverbs 26 is showing us that a fool is destined to repeat folly after folly. What is the solution? Here it is. Again, it's to be born again. Only then you will realize, or will you realize, that Jesus Christ is the eternal minister of heaven who mediated a new covenant and a better covenant for his people. A little deeper application would be, or a specific application, would be to understand this for our church in our day. You have to stop thinking that racism can be solved right now in the ways that the world is purporting. Racism was solved 2,000 years ago. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. In Christ, it was solved. You can't think that sexism can be solved in the ways of the world. 1 Peter 3, 7, he tells husbands that wives are heirs with you. There's a teaching because of Jesus Christ and even gives the warning that if you don't do this, your prayers will be hindered. What about poverty? Solved. Acts chapter 4, 34, 35, it says here, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. It was through Jesus Christ the community he set up. You see, all of the world's problems were already solved. The solution was given 2,000 years ago. But what the world is doing is they are saying, they are rebelling, they are yelling and screaming, I want the answer, but without Jesus. And so when we say Christ is Lord, and that is our declaration, what we are saying is there is no answer without Jesus because Jesus is literally the answer. The sins of the world can only be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has given us the answer. He has given us the answer by showing us not by our power or will can any of this be accomplished. You can try all you want. What you see is a further deterioration of society at large. The human heart not becoming content. You're not happier when you follow the priests and the neo-paganism of the world. You are more angry. You are more bitter. You're like, why can't people be like that? They should be the ones in jail. We should kill them even. Because the answers are not found in the priests of the world. We have a high priest who is all-powerful, seated already, who is effective in his ministry, 
And he is the one that gives us his Holy Spirit to be born again. Then you are changed how? By the inside out. By the inside out, you are being made new again. And praise be to God for that. For through Jesus Christ's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, by the word that is given to us, we see that we are the ones that are beneficiaries of this incredible truth. And we must declare then, and we must follow what is reality. Christ is Lord. There is no other. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you have given us in your word through your Son, revealed to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we understand that there are things that must be meditated upon. There must be things that we must listen to again, study deeply. And today, these are one of those truths that you give us, the ultimate truth, that your Lordship is of eternal and universal weight. Help us to live out this truth and declare this truth to wherever you send us. Help us to live in accordance with your will, pleasing you, our Lord and Savior, with all of our breath and all of our lives. Let's take this time to pray. And I think this is relevant and pertinent to the lives that we lead today. There is a demand for allegiance to the neo-paganism, the priests of the world. But our allegiance is to Christ in every single way, in every single aspect. And so pray that the Lord God will give you wisdom and strength to follow through what he means when he says, Christ is Lord. Let's pray.